0: Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 200 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast. Brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc, which uh, obviously is very special and uh, a big part of today's episode. And where you can also go to the email list there and sign up and they will send you a free treat of the week. Every week they send you a song from the incredible catalog... We're going to talk a little bit about that with this week's guest, the dog, David Grisman. Having him back uh, was really exciting, Um, and I thought it would be cool because there were two 100s this year. There is the 100th birthday of Doc Watson and the 100th anniversary of those 23 lores, and 100 plus 100 is 200, episode 200, so I thought it'd be great to have Dog back to do that. I want to apologize. Um, I had to divide this one uh, into two episodes and this one's a little bit on the shorter side. Um, my wife's aunt uh, passed away in Michigan, so we're actually up in Michigan. We had to leave earlier this week, so I did not have time to to edit the entire thing. Um, so I apologize for the shortness of this, but it did break off at a good cutoff point where uh, we talk about the Doc Watson stuff and a bunch of other cool things, and then we talk about some Lloyd lore stuff on the next episode, so that one will be a little bit longer. So I apologize for the short one, but again, we had to get up here and spend time with family. Actually, I'm recording this intro here in the uh, in the basement of my in-law's place here in, in Bay City, Michigan, so I'm going to get to the ads here real quick. But I do just want to take just a couple seconds here to thank all the listeners. Thank you all so much. Um, episode 200. I can't believe I can't believe 200 episodes, and it, it. Yeah, it just blows me away. So I just want to thank everybody who listens and supports the podcast, including these incredible sponsors, Peghead Nation, Mandolin Cafe. They've been here since day one, pretty much. Uh, week, week two, I guess it would be episode two they started, but Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. They got a great lineup of mandolin instructors Sharon Gilchrist, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibus, Chad Manning, Ian Curry. All the courses include high quality multi angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Just join Peghead Nation's video courses now and you can get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code mandolinbeer, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Ear Trumpet Labs, hand-built microphones from Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed to have great feedback, rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Pava Mandolins dedicated to building for the Impassion Player out of Austin, Texas. Tone Slabs. I got my final prototype of the Mandolins and Beer Signature Model, the Daniel Patrick Signature. I'm super excited. Um, they play great. I love them. I, I, I have not played a different or any other pick since I got uh, my Tone Slabs, the Darth Tone. I love it. It, it feels great. It sounds great. And they last... Um, so go to Tone Slabs, you can get yourself a Tone Slab, and they've got them in all the shapes and sizes. So go to ToneSlabs.com, get yourself a slab of tone, we're talking about things that make your instrument sound good. String Joy, they've got their brand new mandolin strings, they just came out with them, they've been going gangbusters, uh, they gave me a box to give away at, at IBMA, people love them. Uh, they sound incredible. They're coded strings. I'm telling you, if you were never a fan of coded strings like myself, I never liked the way they felt, you've got to try these out. They last longer, and they don't feel like any coded string you've ever played. The best part is if you use the co- promo code Mandolin Beer at checkout, you're going to get 10% off those strings. And also, go to Mandolin Cafe. They're having a giveaway where they are drawing names, and I believe they're giving away six Uh, sets of strings, I believe, over the course of a few weeks, maybe, I think. I'm not positive, but they're giving strings away, so go sign up at my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage-fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles. Did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. Now in their 51st year, they're family-owned, operated, and award-winning. They ship worldwide and you can visit them anytime at elderly.com. All right, y'all, let's get into this with the dog. So honored to have David back on the podcast. He's definitely just one of my favorite players. He's a super nice guy. And and once again, thank you for helping me get episode 200. You guys are the greatest. So thank you so much. Let's get into this episode and I'll be back with a longer episode next week. Cheers, everybody. All right. Well, now it is my pleasure to welcome back for episode 200. Can't think of a better guest than my guest for 150, the dog himself, David Grisman. How's it going, dog? All right, Daniel. How are you? I am doing great. Hey, congratulations, first of all, on the induction into the IBMA.
1: Oh, thanks very much.
0: Yeah, you bet, man. That uh, was uh, you and Sam, two of my favorite favorite players and people. I couldn't have been more happy. So that's that's exciting stuff. Yeah, they gave us the roses while we lived. <laughs> that's, that's the best way to get them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was there any chance of you going out there? you Or were you just like, oh, I'm not, I can't fly all the way to Raleigh? You know,
1: the pandemic gave me two years to reflect on what I've been doing for over half a decade, and I just decided to avoid airports.
0: Yeah, you're not missing anything.
1: Well, I'm missing some stuff that I want to be missing, so. Right. With acoustic disc, we're putting out a release every month, and we do a little podcast, and that, that keeps me pretty busy. And uh, you know, I'm still writing tunes. I wrote one a few days ago, and already got it recorded. So it's like I've really uh, increased my creative output a whole bunch because you don't, you know, standing online to rent a
0: car doesn't really lend itself to creativity. <laughs> right. Right. Well one of the things that's been the the bonus of you uh no longer wanting to go to airports is the all the incredible releases. I mean just since the last time we talked that acoustic disc has been putting out, man. You've got some some gems including all these dogworks volumes. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah. Well, we were just talking kind of off air it's doc Watson's 100th birthday. And you've got three incredible, well, actually four if you count the uh, DVD you can get at Acoustic Disc. But the uh, you've got a version of Dock and Dog with a bunch of outtakes and, and songs from Home Sweet Home and the Dock and Dog album. You said you got some other things that are uh, possibly brewing up here. Well, I just yeah, I've been transferring tapes.
1: You know, for over fifty years, I just kept everything and re- recorded as many gigs as I possibly could. I just, I've been transferring a lot of tapes, been an ongoing thing, you know, for years, transferring them into the digital domain at the highest possible resolution. I've just transferred about seven Doc and Dog shows from 1998, so we're planning to put some of that material out. I keep finding tunes that I never remember playing, and, uh, you know, with <laughs> Doc
0: would just, he never had a set list,
1: you know. he just call them, and, you know, you had to be ready.
0: How did you How did you initially meet Doc Watson?
1: Well, that's a good story. My guru and mentor was a man named Ralph Rinsler, who I met when I was two years old in my mother's art class. My mother was an art teacher in Passaic, New Jersey, and Ralph was 12 years old. And he told me this story years later. But he was a a fantastic musician, a mandolin player, a folklorist. And around 1960, he traveled to Shunes, Tennessee, to record Clarence Ashley, who he had rediscovered. Clarence had made recordings in the late 20s he was a great banjo player and singer and old-time musician and ralph had rediscovered him and one of his neighbors was doc watson who uh, made his first recordings on the, these uh folkways albums called old-time music at clarence ashley which ralph recorded and i was 15 years old when he brought the tapes back and sitting in his kitchen he played them for me and and I, he told me years later, I was the first one to, to notice, who's that guitar player? So I got to meet Doc, and fairly soon after that, those musicians came to New York to play a concert for an organization called the Friends of Old Time Music, which I got involved with as a student in, at NYU. And Doc, in fact, was the first professional musician to ever invite me on a stage. I was about 17 at Gertie's Folk City. So we go back a long way. I used to, when he would, he would stay at Ralph's apartment in Greenwich Village, I'd take him around the city shopping and looking for stuff. He was an, an amazing human being, Doc. You know, one of the great experiences in my musical career was getting to play with him.
0: What are some things, like, as, as a young player that you learned when you first started hanging around with him and getting to know him as far as playing goes? Well, I think all,
1: all the great musicians, you learn a lot of great... Uh, if you pay attention and listen, I think listening is the key ingredient in music, whether you're a player or not. Pay attention, you just pick up on all kinds of stuff, you know. Just an attitude of getting it right. Just the depth of his musical knowledge and his repertoire and and just you know hanging out with a person who was blind but was more aware of his surroundings. I remember years later after I met him, he was visiting my home in Mill Valley, California, and there was a like a coffee table there, and he just had his hand on it he says, "This is slate, this is made of slate, isn't it you know <laughs> wow <laughs> and, and i mean he completely wired his his house in north carolina really yeah and drove a car in an empty field he just did you know it just wasn't an impediment for him he was uh, very aware of so many things
0: man so how did the uh, doc and dog album come up uh, initially cuz from reading the liner notes it was more of a It wasn't like a session per se. It was more like hanging out after dinner sort of things.
1: Right. He came over for dinner one time or maybe a couple of times in Mill Valley. And I had built a studio in my garage. And after dinner, we just decided to go play some tunes. Oh, actually, before that, I made this album, Home is Where the Heart Is, for Rounder. And it was pretty much a bluegrass album, but I asked Doc if he'd uh, record some tunes with me. So that that was the first session I think we did. Although we may have... I think we played on some other albums together. I think we played on the Maria Muldoor album. And I know we played on a Dan Fogelberg album.
0: Oh, wow. Cool. Mm-hmm. So when you sit down with that, you weren't planning on recording. How did you decide, like, which tunes? I mean, the... Um you know, Feast Here Tonight, or not Feast Here Tonight, um, Long Journey Home.
1: Yeah, well, basically the focus of that was on Monroe Brothers material, because it was guitar and mandolin duets, and, and I had in mind, you know, I never considered myself much of a singer, and so my concept was to record a number of Monroe Brothers tunes and have great tenor singers overdub the harmony which I did. I think Ricky Skaggs sang on one of them, Alan O'Brien sang on another, Curly Seckler sang on What Is Home Without Love. Mm -hmm.
0: And then the other tunes that appear on Doc and Dog, like those were that, again, just jams where you're like, oh, let's just pick some tunes.
1: Yeah, we just, yeah, what do you feel like playing? And, you know, oh, how about Kentucky Waltz? And one of my favorite recordings of my whole career is "Summertime" from
0: that session, and we just did it once, you know. And to me, yeah, and there's, is it "Sweet Georgia Brown"? I think is one that you guys do it through. Is it like three separate tempos and just hearing like the uh, just like the <laughs> laughter after the take and the joy of like you know? It's just it. It's exactly what it should be in a recording like that.
1: And makes it makes me laugh to think about it. <laughs> He likes to speed things up, you know. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's better than dragging. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Now, you mentioned too, when you guys played live shows, he didn't like set lists. But, and one of the things I noticed on the, there's the two live albums that are currently available live at Acoustic Stage and live in Watsonville.
1: Yeah, Watsonville, California, just outside. Uh, Santa Cruz and that day the mayor came up and gave Doc the keys to the city and announced that he was proclaiming for that day the name of the town be changed to Doc Watsonville
0: <laughs> that's great yeah so when you guys he, he didn't have a set list but did he change songs up you? because there's there's the two versions I love both versions of In the Pines oh yeah on the one version you guys do that real high lonesome harmony the but not on the other version so how did did you just kind of have to be on your toes the whole time when you were playing with them well you know I used to like back in the old and in the way days which
1: this year is the 50th anniversary of of that band I had this high falsetto where you know nothing was too high for me and I never really liked it, but the other guys, I'd automatically, like, hear a higher harmony above what Peter and Jerry were singing, and I'd just throw it in there, and I never really liked it, but, you know, as the years (laughs) went by, I can't do that anymore, so it may have been one of those shows, I just couldn't do it. In fact, actually, Doc sang the higher yodel on that stuff. I wish I could. I mean, there's one recording with the band here today. That's a bluegrass album that Herb Peterson and I produced. With. Every year, Herb and I would put together a bluegrass band, and that particular year, we had uh, Jimmy Buchanan, the great fiddle player, Emery Gordy Jr., who was, uh, was Elvis's bass player but really loved bluegrass, and Vince Gill, a young Vince Gill. We did a version of the Stanley Brothers' "Lonesome River," and I sang real high on that. That was probably the p- pinnacle of my high tenors singing <laughs> career, <laughs> which I now I wish I could do it. You know, because I hear these harmonies, but the voice is not there.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, those some of those tunes just so high. You know, they call bluegrass that high lonesome sound, and
1: that's sort of a, I guess, a virtue is to be able to sing real high. But I can get real high, but I can't <laughs> sing. <harmonies. laughs> but I originally learned to sing baritone from Red Allen.
0: Oh, cool.
1: Yeah. You know, figuring out harmonies is you know, been part of my life. I still do it. When I write a tune now, I just usually figure out the harmony to it as well.
0: In that gap of time, if you were, you know, thinking back to when you were, you know, a young guy playing with, with Doc, and then, you know, the these shows that you recorded with him and that you booked, as far as a player went, what is something that you felt, I mean, you had so many years of different experiences in between that and these shows with him, you know, what do you think change for you you know where you're like i'm I'm stoked for doc to hear me now (laughs) you know and and play these shows because you know you've got all these years of experience under and done so much
1: well you know music is one thing where time is on your side you know so and there's no teacher like experience especially for somebody like doc where you just had to be ready to to play the tune and you know, and I, I listened to a lot of these tunes. I knew, just like when I got back together with Jerry Garcia, we had both spent many years apart playing all kinds of music. And when we came back together, we a lot of what we explored together was material that we listened to when we were young. We just think of tunes, oh yeah, let's do that tune. And we just automatically... You know, because we had listened to it so much and possibly never even played these songs, but we would uh, paid attention to them, you know, and we'd listened to the like the handsome cabin boys song we both knew from a record of A.L. Lloyd and Ewan McCall of called Blow Boys Blow of uh, Wailing Ballads. We just knew that. And Ralph Rinsler, my guru, had played mandolin on that original record. We just knew it, you know. We may never have played it, but, you know, we were ready to at that point.
0: You've, had, you've done some, some amazing collaborations. Is there anybody out there that you wish you could have collaborated with or, you know, that you were like, oh, Well, sure, you know, um, most of
1: them are probably dead. I used to have a, a file in my filing cabinet that said concepts. And I would just think of all these collaborations. And after a number of decades, I came to the conclusion, it's not so much who I want to play with. It's more like who wants to play with me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you could have the greatest concept and for some reason or another, it might not work out. I just kind of let it happen now.
0: I saw some pictures. I saw that up. Uh... Billy Strings and the guys were, were over at your place not too long ago. Yeah, that was
1: fun. Yeah, Billy's a sweet kid, and uh, he played in my bluegrass band f- for a little while, a couple of gigs. And he and Don Jewel, yeah, they opened uh, a number of shows for Del McCurry and, and myself. We had a great time. I, yeah, immediately uh, made them play a bunch of my new tunes, (laughs) (laughs) learn them, you know, put them to work, you know, no, we had, we jammed for about four hours.
0: That's cool.
1: And speaking of Doc Watson, you know, Billy has really studied Doc. In fact, he knew he was quoting solos left and right from tunes that we uh,
0: recorded. So he's, he's done his homework. That's one thing, like, you know, because as anything becomes popular, the naysayers start coming out of the woodwork. You know, like, ah, oh, it's not bluegrass. And I'm like, you know what? Every guy in that band could sit down and play you bluegrass till you couldn't take it anymore. You know, they did they did their work. Now they're doing their thing. You know, they're finding their right. own well,
1: way. They, they can play bluegrass with the best of them, as a matter of fact. You know, I I'm generally have the feeling that if it's popular, I'm not into it. But... It's miraculous that he's gained this kind of popular success, and he deserves it, you know. I mean, lots of people deserve it. Doc deserved it. Dave Appelon deserved it. I mean, as far as I'm
0: concerned. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, though, is – and this would be a good perspective to get from you because you – at one point in your career, I mean, even – I mean, to this day, your, your name is synonymous. I mean, you, you – have a style of music <laughs> that you know you've you brought out and, and you, I mean you were playing the tonight show I mean these are these are like things reserved for superstars you know is it is it wild to see like did you ever play like arenas like 10,000 seaters it, it just blows my mind well
1: uh, briefly in 1968 uh Peter Rohn and I had a band called Earth Opera and we played a few like arenas with, we opened for the doors. Oh, wow. Stuff. And, uh, it, it occurred to me that, you know, I never wanted to plug in just because I, I didn't think, uh, it sounded that good, you know? And, and also maybe I have sensitive ears, but you know, those shows with the doors, I remember playing one like sports arena with, with them and we use their amplifiers and, you know, all night long, and I I couldn't go to sleep, my ears were ringing. I just think most electric, you know, electric guitars, et cetera, were developed for volume in the um, ongoing pursuit of volume. And, you know, at some point, it hurts, you know? <laughs> right, but, right. And uh, I just can't equivocate pain and music, you know? I just don't think music should be painful, so... I just stuck with, you know, there ain't no plugs on me. um, (laughs) You know, it sort of probably cut me out of playing larger venues. Not that I could probably have filled them ever, but I might have gotten on the bill with in that world more. But, you know, I never really, I mean, I never even wanted to be on a stage. I, I just wanted to learn initially how to play bluegrass mandolin you know i didn't realize the implications of you know if you got good at that or any kind of playing you'd end up playing a gig and you'd be on a stage and then there would be people expecting to be entertained (laughs) (laughs) and you know i mean i'm not knocking it it was yeah, you know, a great way to make a living, ultimately. I, I mean, not for maybe the first 30 years, but... <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, being a mandolin player, professional mandolin player in the 60s, you you better have some other kind of, you know, income-producing work, you know? And so I, you know, learned how to edit tape and became a record producer and, and ultimately uh, became an instrument collector and then, you know, bought and sold and traded instrument. You know, I, I just tried to be as versatile with music as I could be.
0: It's so cool to hear you say that because I think that's also a big part of your success because you just started because you wanted to play mandolin. You got to where you were because of your love for it. You worked hard at it, and people admired it and listened to it. More people, you know, and then you found your own path, which is which is great. Which I want to sh- give a little shout out to um, Teo Quail, by the way, from the uh, Crying Uncle band. Oh yeah, yeah. They did the tribute, or did they, they did uh, the induction? Yeah,
1: that was uh, great. I I really appreciate. It. He's a he's another
0: great young player
1: and. I got together with him a few years ago in, in Berkeley and he came for a lesson and we had a good time. And in fact, I he got his man, there were three mandolin players on that stage that got their instruments from me.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. You know. I remember meeting him a few years ago and I was like, oh, where'd you get the, uh, where'd you get that mandolin? <laughs> he's like, just like this. he's like, dog, <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was great. It,
1: Hey, I was there in spirit. I thought they did a great job. Del McCurry did a terrific commentary there.
0: Well, that's another great album, man. You and the, the live, you and Dell, the, the most recent one that you had put out, a few years now. I saw that tour here in Charleston.
1: Oh, cool. Dell is, uh, you know, one of my oldest bluegrass friends. I met him at the first gig he ever played with Bill Monroe in 1963, where he played banjo. You know he was actually the banjo player, uh which was far out,
0: you know <laughs> no kidding.